from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Steve Ader. Steve grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. His parents were singers active in the Lutheran Church, so music was a very important part of Steve's growing up. He was actually going to study to become a concert pianist, but was discouraged. Steve tells this very interesting story on how he ran into the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Steve where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. Well, Warren, um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in a small town called Richmond, California, where my father, during the Second World War, had built a house, and then he went off to war in the Second World War, leaving my mother and myself in that little house that he built. And I grew up in this small town and had so many amazing experiences. What were your interests growing up, Steve? Well, my interests really were uh, centered around things that my parents did. My parents were in music a lot. They sang in the local church that we belonged to. It was the Lutheran Church. They sang in operettas, and they were in various singing events. They had a quartet and performed locally in the Bay Area. And so I learned a lot about loving music from the very beginning. So music has always influenced my life a terrific amount. And uh, other interests were nature. I used to go hiking in what, in those days, many years ago, in 1950s and 60s in Richmond, California, were the beautiful grassy hills of the Bay Area, which now are filled with houses. Did you sing together? Well, I never sang with my parents. In fact, I always felt as I sat in the audience, nervous for them, hoping they would do a good performance. But I never did actually uh, join in in singing with them. But it started a great interest for me in music, which I've had all through my life. And in fact, I think in college, I uh, was studying to be a concert pianist. But because my parents felt I should do something that they at that time felt was more uh, meaningful and maybe more lucrative in terms of a profession, They urged me not to do it. So you never did? I never did, but I've carried this interest all the way to the present day where, in fact, recently just here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I live now at 7,500 feet in the beautiful mountains, I just bought a harpsichord from the Pro Musica here in Santa Fe, and I'm restoring it. So did you do anything with your music when you were growing up? Well, I did uh, take the violin when I was a little boy, And I took piano lessons, and I learned the keyboard, and I played Chopin and Bach and Beethoven and a lot of keyboard things. But then as my uh, adventures unfolded, and as I left the San Francisco Bay Area and began to travel, uh, I couldn't carry the piano with me very easily, and I dropped playing it from that, that time. haven't played it very much since, but I'm going to now that I have this new harpsichord. So what did you study in college? Well, I ended up studying um, 
the arts. I lived in Ireland for three years and three months. Uh, I was then living there because at that time, as a Baha'i, I had gone to Ireland to help establish uh, the Baha'i faith in some of the small towns there where we lived. I lived in Cork, Ireland, and uh, I studied psychology and English and got an honors degree in that topic, in that subject, and then later went to the University of Illinois, where I studied landscape architecture and uh, became a Bachelor of Landscape Architecture and then a Master of Landscape Ar- Architecture. Uh, and that's the final degree that I had was a Master of Landscape Architecture at the University of Illinois. So how did you run into the Baha'i Faith? Really, my life is a testimony to the many undeserved blessings and bounties that have come to me. I've had many adventures, and it's not because of me. So when I tell a story of something amazing or wonderful, something like that, it's because of God's blessing and not really to do so much with me. In the Baha'i writings, there's a a beautiful uh, concept that says there is a power, a mysterious power in this cause far, far above the kin of men and angels. It is the power of the covenant. It pulsates through the arteries of all mankind. It guides and protects us. It assists us. It heals us. Well, this is the power. This is the power, however undeserved, that I have felt through my 46 years as a Baha'i. But it is the power that has assisted me through my life even that happened before I heard of the uh, Baha'i faith, before I heard of Baha'u'llah. And I will tell you a little story about that because it links with something later I might tell you. When I was around 12 years old, I had a very strange dream. Well, not so strange as it was very luminous. I dreamt uh, at that time that I was in Oakland, California, in this dream. And I was amongst some people who had these hats on. They looked like what you would call a Middle Eastern fez. And these people were saying something like Allah. And I was a little perturbed because I thought, that sounds like it's Islam or something, but I don't know what it was. And then I suddenly saw a big car that pulled up in front of this building where I was standing, and a black car, and a man got out of the car, and he also had on one of these little uh, hats, little Middle Eastern says hats, and he looked at me and smiled, the most beautiful smile, and he walked into the building. And then the car was waiting there, and pretty soon the people said, he's coming, he's coming, and he came out of the building and again looked at me and smiled and got in the car, and the car drove away very fast. Well, this really perplexed me because it was the dream was so out of the ordinary, I couldn't understand why would I dream of something like that. And in fact, later on, I'll tell you in another part of my life's experiences why I must have dreamt of that. But now going to uh, the topic that you asked me, which is how did I hear of the Baha'i faith for the first time? I was about uh, 20 years old, maybe 21, and I had just graduated from junior college uh, at that time. And I had been experimenting and trying to learn and understand about the spiritual world. I, in fact, was raised in the church, in the Lutheran church. I was confirmed and ordained, uh, you know, as a member in that church. And I was very, really religious in a sense that I believed very deeply in Jesus Christ 
and in the teachings of the Church. But still, I wanted to understand more, things like, well, what about when we die? What happens to the soul? I wanted to understand about the soul and life after death and things like that. So I had been reading a lot of things, and I was interested in such material. And in fact, on this particular night, I had a friend of mine, a Chinese friend who was visiting with me, and at midnight, just before midnight, we were trying to have a sort of a seance. I suppose you might know what that is, and I hope the listening audiences have heard of those. Uh, so we were sitting and sort of saying prayers and asking for God to send a sign or some kind of something that would make us realize that there was something more than just physical power on earth. Well, we're waiting there, and nothing seemed to happen. And my poor friend, he said, well, you know what? I'm tired, and I'm going home. I don't want to do this anymore. So I said, okay, well, good night, and it was so nice to have you here. So I was sitting in my bedroom right around midnight by myself, and I said a prayer in my mind. I said, oh, God, and I said, if there is a God, please send to me a messenger or someone or something or a sign that will let me understand that you are there. And just at that moment, there was this loud crash in front of my house, but it was a car crash, and I thought, well, surely that couldn't be a sign from God. <laughs> so I ran out to the street to see what had happened. And there was roadwork sign on that little street where I lived, detouring people around a ditch that had been dug in the street. And the car had hit that sign and broke the lantern, and there was glass on the street, and the car drove away. So I thought, well, I better pick up the glass because another car will come and get a flat tire. So I was picking up the glass, and I looked up, and I saw headlights coming toward me. And I thought to myself, and to tell you the truth, I'm not sure why I thought this, but I thought, maybe the person in that car has a message for me. Maybe that person has something to tell me of what I'm looking for. Well, to my almost surprise, the car stopped and a gentleman got out and walked up and he said, what happened? And I said, well, there was this accident and I came out here to pick up the glass. And I was thinking in my mind, how can I tell this person that maybe he has a message for me? Because he'll think I'm rather strange if I say that. So I said to him, you know, I think that it's maybe not an accident that I ran into you. You know, I believe that there are like spiritual powers and forces that help us from the other world that we can't see that world, but it helps us. And he said, well, I believe that way too. And I said, well, well what do you believe? And he said, well, I don't know where to begin. I don't know how to explain the beginning of my belief. And I said, well, what is the beginning of your belief? When did it begin? And he said, well, actually, uh, it began in 1844. And I said, 1844, well, what's, what, what happened? He said, well, in 1844, there was a great spiritual medium. He was like a messenger between God and all the people in the world. And his name was the Bob. And I said, the Bob? And he said, yes, the Bob. And I said, well, what is that? He said, well, the Bob is a word that means the gate. And he said, he was the gate that closed the door on the age of prophecies and opened the door 
to a new age of fulfillment. And he announced to the whole world that a new messenger of God was going to come soon. And I thought, oh boy, this is fascinating. I really want to hear about this. Well, as it would happen, suddenly it started raining and thundering and lightning. <laughs> it might sound like a, something somebody would write for a screenplay, but it's not. It actually happened like this. It's, in fact, very rare in the San Francisco Bay Area that we have thunder, but that particular night we did. And I thought, I better listen. And it was raining, and I didn't know about this fellow. I didn't know who he was. I thought, well, I don't want to bring him in my house. He said, why don't you sit in my car, and I'll tell you all about it. So I sat in his car, and for three hours, from about midnight until three in the morning, he unfolded for me the story of progressive revelation. And this was to explain that God had never left humanity without guidance, that he had always sent a messenger, a prophet, one of his teachers to teach us and to guide us, and that always the holy books were revealed over the ages, each of the different ones that came. For example, Zoroaster and Krishna and Buddha and Jesus Christ and Muhammad and the Bab and Baha'u'llah. So he was explaining this progression, which we Baha'is call progressive revelation. It's sort of like the evolution of religion, so to speak, a spiritual evolution. And it all made so much sense to me. And as he explained to me in very clear terms and using a lot of quotations from, I guess, the Baha'i writings and from other scriptures, he unfolded for me this whole concept of progressive revelation and that God would not leave us without guidance, and that now God has sent a new messenger, a new prophet, a new manifestation of God named Baha'u'llah. And that's how I first heard about the Baha'i faith. Well, it went on from there. I said, well, you know, uh, I would like to read about this, but uh, I'm leaving for Europe in about two weeks, and I'm going on an Italian steamer to Trieste from New York, and I wish I could have some books. And he said, well, I have a briefcase full of books. And, and I would give you some, some books. And I thought to myself, well, he wants to give the books. I said, well, shouldn't I pay you for these? And he said, no, I wouldn't want to accept any money. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting. I can't imagine that he wouldn't want me to pay him, but it must be that he's very sincere. So I chose several books. One of them was The Hidden Words of Baha'u'llah, which is a very beautiful, very succinct and concentrated book that Baha'u'llah wrote. I was so excited about reading that book because he had told me all about it in this little three-hour discussion. He had explained that this was the book that had been hidden and that was now revealed. So I was very excited to read that. And I chose a number of others. I think one was called Religion for Mankind by Horace Hawley and Renewal of Civilization, by David Hoffman, some pamphlets that he had as Baha'is. They, at that time, gave out some pamphlets. And a few other things. I don't remember all of them now. But I remember I rushed up to my bedroom thinking, because, you know, he had emphasized to me that this was the return of Christ. And that's a very, very huge statement to make, you see. It was a very bold and very uh, almost frightening for me in a way because I thought, well, maybe it's a false prophet. And I said that to him. I said, what if, what if this is a false prophet? Maybe this, this Baha'u'llah is a false prophet. He said, well, Jesus talked of prophets coming, and he said he would again come in 
the name of the Father, that he would come again in the glory of the Father, and he said that you will know them by their fruits. So you can examine the Baha'i teachings, and you can examine and know about the Baha'is, and you will know if it's a true thing by their fruits. And I thought, well, that's logical. So anyway, I rushed up to my bedroom and um, sat down on my bed, and I opened up this book, The Hidden Words, and literally, uh, it, it seemed in that moment as though I could smell the most beautiful fragrance of roses. And I thought, well, this couldn't be happening. It's not possible. But it just seemed that way to me. And I read the first words, which are I memorized it even. It says, Baha'u'llah says, This is that which hath descended from the realm of glory, uttered by the tongue of power and might, and revealed unto the prophets of old. Well, that really struck me. I thought, oh, this was revealed before. And he said, we have taken the inner essence thereof and clothed it in the garment of brevity that they may stand faithful unto the covenant of God and fulfill in their lives his trust. Well, it was just the most beautiful thing. And when I read these hidden words, I was really, really convinced right away that this was the voice of God. And I remember tossing and turning all through the night thinking to myself, Christ has returned. Baha'u'llah has come. And I woke up early and went to my parents' room, knocked on their door, and I said, Mom, Dad, Christ has returned. I literally did this. They were rather sleepy and disturbed about this. They said, you better go talk to the minister about it. I said, okay, I will. And I did. How did that go? Well, it was very interesting. I went with the hidden words to show them to the minister, and I explained why wouldn't it be logical since Christ himself said he would return, and I had been reading the things from the Baha'i pamphlets, and it had said that he would come in a new name, and that he would come like a thief in the night. And it all made sense because it connected to prophecy. So I explained this to my minister, who I love very much. It was a very wonderful church that I belonged to. He said, oh, no, 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 it wouldn't happen like this. We would look up and we would see Christ coming down in the clouds. And I thought to myself, well, I don't know. I said, but what, what, well, I said, well, I have another question for you. And I didn't really feel comfortable about his answer because it didn't really make too much sense to me at the time. And I said, here's my other question. What about my Chinese friend, Kent, and my very good Jewish friend, uh, Bob, and, and my other friends who are of different races and different cultures? Some of them have different religions. Will they be saved? How will they be saved? Isn't there something more universal than this church that would include everybody? And he said, well, they all have to belong to this church. And I said, well, you mean this church on 24th Street? And he said, yes, ultimately they have to believe in the creed that we have, and then they would be saved. And I thought in my mind, well, how does that work? Because what about all the millions of people in the world that are from all these different religious backgrounds who don't even know of Jesus Christ? How would they be saved? How would they have guidance? How would they know? And it made so much sense that now Baha'u'llah has come, but he embraces all of the past religions and accepts the holy books from those religions. And I thought that would be a way that everybody could be unified. So I had that discussion to some extent with this minister, but he didn't encourage me too much, to tell you the truth. What happened next was I went on this trip. I was on my way to Austria. I had been invited 
by a fellow employee. I was working part-time at Macy's department store at the time, and one of the employees whose father was a count in Austria, and he was the head of the School of Medicine. It's a very famous school of medicine in, in Austria, in Graz, and he was the head of this great school of medicine. He had invited me to go there and spend time and visit them. So I went straight on this ship. Well, it was a very interesting adventure because I first went on a Greyhound bus, which took four days and four nights from San Francisco to New York City. And in those days, of course, I had to go the cheapest possible way. So I, I went on the bus. And when I got to New York City, I stayed one night in a hotel. And then the next day, went to the ship, uh, one of the Italian ships. In fact, a year or so before this, the Andrea Doria, which was an Italian ship, had sunk. But I was still going on an Italian ship to do this transatlantic crossing. And everywhere I went, I was saying to people, have you heard of the Baha'is? Did you hear of this Baha'i faith? And everybody say, nope, didn't hear about it. No, don't know about it. And I started to wonder, what's going on? No one seems to know about this. Well, I got on the ship, and as in fact as I was getting on the ship, I was in the lowest possible cost area, you know, in the dorm type of things where you stay on the ship. And I was in a cabin with three other very boisterous people. But as I was getting on the ship, this lady got on the ship who was very interesting. She had about 14 or 16 big trunks, and she had a cat, a black cat. Her na the name of the cat was Spidey. And I just said hello, and then later I met her, and I told her I'm really distressed by this horrible room that I'm in with these three people. They're so noisy, and they were drinking, and I wasn't very happy with that. And she said, I'll ask for them to get you your own room. And she happened to speak Italian, so she got a room, another room for me. I don't know exactly at the time. I didn't understand why was she able to do all of this, but I was very grateful. It turned out that she was an author of mystery stories, quite a famous one, Patricia Highsmith, who, in fact, wrote many, many of the Alfred Hitchcock stories, one of them being Strangers on a Train that was made into a movie, and another one, The Talented Mr. Ripley, which has been somewhat recently shown on Matt Damon, I think, stars in it. Well, this was Patricia Highsmith, and we became good friends. She told me from the very beginning, she said, well, I'm an atheist, and I don't believe in God, but I was telling her all about Baha'i faith, and I read to her from the Hidden Words, and we had long discussions about this. It was very sweet because many, many years ago, when I think she was in her 80s, I got a postcard from her. She had a few homes. She had one home in, in Italy, one home in, I think, a place in London and a place in New York. I'm not sure. She had various residences. And she sent me a postcard from London saying that, I hope you're doing well, and I never forget about Baha'i. If I ever believed in any religion, it would be of Baha'u'llah. <laughs> she wrote that in her handwriting. It was a very sweet memory to have that from her. Well, we traveled as good friends on that transatlantic crossing, which had an incredible storm that we went through where nobody could come out of their cabins, and the ship was pounding and pounding on the big waves. Finally, I got to Austria and began looking everywhere for Baha'is, couldn't find any. And after I somewhat wore out my welcome at the Count's house, his name was Hans von Bertha, a wonderful uh, medical doctor and professor, I made my way to Munich. And now this is where I met the Baha'is, finally. I had never met another Baha'i except that man in the street that night. I was living with German farmers on the outskirts of Munich. 
working at a big electronics company called Siemens Halski. And during that time, I learned German. But I wanted to find the Baha'is. So I, I had every week a gathering in my place to discuss philosophy and spiritual things. Well, I'd given out all these Baha'i books and things to people because I wanted them to know about Baha'i. But then I didn't have any left except the hidden words and maybe something else. And I was a little upset, so I wrote to the uh, Baha'i National Assembly. That's the national governing body of all the Baha'is in the United States. I wrote a letter to them saying, I'm over here in Germany, and I have these meetings, but I ran out of books, and can you send me some books? <laughs> they wrote to the National Assembly of Germany, and I got an answer from them that gave me the address and the contact information to meet with the Baha'is in Munich. What happened next, I... I uh, got myself together and bought some roses and went to the home of what I was going to be the first Baha'is that I met in Germany. It was a very beautiful big home, and I knocked on the door, and this wonderful person came and opened the door, and she said, Welcome! And she invited me in and began visiting, and she started telling me all these beautiful things. And it turned out that this was uh, Gina Garcia, Baha'i, whose husband, Russell Garcia, was the arranger and uh, producer of music for Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald and many of the great, great jazz artists, and himself uh, a great musician who is still living, in, in fact, in New Zealand. Russell is now in his 90s, I think, and he's a Baha'i, and they had gone pioneering to New Zealand, but they met me anyway in Munich, and that's when I said, well, I'm a Baha'i. And so this Gina, she said, well, have you ever signed your Baha'i card? And I said, well, what's the matter? Do you doubt that I'm a Baha'i? Why do I have to sign anything? What, 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 why do I have to do that? And she said, well, it's a way of registering so that they know, you know, that the, the administration of the Baha'i faith knows that you're a member. And I thought, well, okay, that's all right. The very first event that I ever attended as a, a new Baha'i, a big event, was the dedication of the Baha'i House of Worship in uh, Germany, which is in Langenhain, just outside of Frankfurt. And that was where this story connects with the dream I had when I was 12 years old. It's one of the continental houses of worship. In fact, there's one on every continent, more or less. These nine-sided beautiful temples, they're called Baha'i temples, that invite everyone from every side, from every of the nine different sides, the nine entrance ways to come into the Baha'i Temple. And it's built for the service and worship of all mankind, not just for the Baha'is. But this was being dedicated. And at that dedication, there were a number of the people called Hands of the Cause of God. These are individuals that were appointed by the guardian uh, of the Baha'i faith, Shoghi Effendi, who was, in fact, a relative of Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha, the central figures of the faith. He, in fact, was a central figure of the Baha'i faith. Well, his widow, whose name was Ruhia Khanum, and her given name was Mary Maxwell, was attending this dedication to all of mankind of this house of worship. And I remember I was standing in this parking lot uh, looking at this new, somewhat modern building of this house of worship, because each each of these houses of worship are, have different designs. They're not all the same. This one is somewhat modern. And a car drove up. It was a big black car. And now this relates to this dream I had when I was only 12 years old. I was 
awestruck by this beautiful temple in a parking lot which was still under construction and this car drove up and I stood there and put my hand on the car and for some very strange reason I suddenly remembered this dream that I had when I was 12, this dream when I had dreamt of these people with hats and this man that got out of a black car and I suddenly this door opened and this lady stood up and I looked at she was such a very wonderful looking person and she said, hello, how are you? Nice to meet you. I had read a book that she had written called The Prescriptions for Living, a wonderful book. So I was already enamored of her beautiful style and of her very interesting writing. Well, I had the pleasure of being with Baha'is from all over the world at that dedication. They had come from many, many places. And we all were privileged to look at the uh, portrait of Baha'u'llah It's not displayed. We don't display that portrait, only for a very special occasion. Well, anyway, what did happen next was uh, Vietnam. The war came, and I was suddenly notified while I was there in Germany that I was going to be drafted. And, of course, I was horrified. I thought, well, how can I do this as a Baha'i? I go and kill people? This is not possible. It's, you know, going back to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, and I was pretty fundamentalist about that idea. I thought, how am I going to do this? And so I came back to America, and um, I, I telephoned the National Baha'i Center, and um, interestingly enough, talked to the secretary of that of the National Baha'i Assembly, and it was uh, Dr. Rue. And he said, don't worry, I will send a letter to your draft board that explains that Baha'is are conscientious objectors, and that you won't have to carry a weapon, but you will go into the army and serve. Well, that relieved me greatly. During my medical training in Texas, which was in Fort Sam Houston, we were all mostly the religious people who were conscientious objectors. And so I would go every Sunday to go off of the base to this very lovely lady. She was elderly and very humble. She had a tiny little house, and she invited Baha'is to come there and non-Baha'is, people who are not Baha'is, to come and say prayers every Sunday. So I went to her little prayer meeting, a little devotional, and I started taking with me uh, some of the guys, some of the other fellow army guys with me. Then uh, instead of going to Vietnam, which I thought was going to happen to me, out of 500 people, and how this happened I don't know, they got down to the last few names that they called out, the numbers and names they would say, all of you with these numbers go over to this group, and all of those with this other number you go to another group, and they, nearly all 500 were called out, and it came down to me and one other person were left, and they said, we don't have any orders for you. There are no orders. You're not going to Vietnam right now. <laughs> so I was greatly relieved, as I think anyone could imagine. And I thought, well, where would I be going? What's going to happen? They put me in a holding company, and I literally was peeling stacks of potatoes. You know, you see those funny movies where people are peeling potatoes in the kitchen in the army for days and days. Well, that's what I was doing, and cleaning toilets, washing floors, and waiting and waiting to find out where were they going to send me. And I have no clue why this happened in this way. I, I know I prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God to do whatever was God's will for me, whatever was God's will, not my will. And it ended up, I guess, maybe God's will wasn't for me to go to Vietnam. And I was sent, 
and won't imagine where, right back to my home in San Francisco, in the San Francisco Bay Area, to Letterman General Hospital, which was, in fact, the place where all of the most severely wounded people came. They were air evac'd out of Vietnam to Hawaii and then to Letterman for treatment. And I ended up working with all of these people who were so severely and sadly wounded from that war. So I had certainly a taste of the nightmare of that war by being with those people. And I had vowed uh, during that time that if, if I could get out of this safely, I had decided I will go to India. Why India? India because I had read this beautiful book from a lady named Mrs. Violet Nakjavani called The Amatul Baha Visits India. And that was about Ruhia Khanum, the wife of the guardian, visiting India. And when I read that book, I was so impressed by the beauty of what she had done. And also, I don't know why India, maybe just because it sounded so exotic, I think if I'm going to do something for the Baha'i faith, which had by this time influenced me and given me such strength and happiness inside, if I'm going to do something for this faith, I think I should go pioneering is what they call it. It's like where a Baha'i has to go and be self-sufficient, work and earn their own living, but at the same time try to live a good Baha'i life and teach the faith to people. But of course, Baha'is are forbidden, literally, in the writings of the faith to coerce or to force our religion on people. We're forbidden from that. We're allowed and encouraged to teach the Baha'i faith, but never to cross that line of coercion or forcing our religion on other people. So it's something we all have to learn how we do that. Well, I was so excited, I said, I'm going to go to India if I get out of this thing. And towards the last week of my service in the army, the commander called me in and he said, Ader, you're going to go to Vietnam. We're, we are going to extend your term for one more year and you're going to Vietnam. Now, wait a minute, Steve. I thought if you were drafted, it was a limit of two years. How could they extend it? I thought it was, too, and maybe that, maybe that commander didn't know that I was a conscientious objector. I don't know, but what happened was, what you said is a good point, because it actually didn't happen. I was horrified, and I asked one of the people there, what am I going to do? This fellow told me, he said, just go over there and turn in your things like you're supposed to get out, and they won't know the difference. <laughs> So I did this. I went to the processing office on the day that I was supposed to get out. I didn't listen to this commander, whatever this fellow was. I don't even remember the exact relationship he had. It was a company commander. They processed me and gave me my papers, and I was out. I got out. Oh, boy, was I ever happy. And in that moment, I said, I'm going to India. And that's what I did. I met many of the wonderful people... There was a big intercontinental conference at the time, all around the world, held simultaneously. And at that time, Mr. Fazy had come from Haifa to India. And the Baha'is there asked me, would you accompany Mr. Fazy and stay with him and help him? So I was accompanying him and staying with him and trying to help him. And there was going to be this international telephone call. In those days, we didn't have, like we do now, satellite TV, Skype, and all the wonderful things we now have that are so great. We had telephones, though. And so each of the conferences would connect by telephone and talk to one another. It was like a big conference call all around the world. 
Well, I was sitting in the room with Mr. Fazy waiting for the phone call to come through, and he said, well, where are you going next? I said, well, my visa for India is going to run out. It had been almost a year, and I'm probably going to the Philippines, to Mindanao. Dr. Mohajir had, in fact, asked me to go there. So Mr. Fazy said, well, that's interesting, but there is a need in Ireland also. If you could maybe consider Ireland, would you be interested to go to Ireland? And I said, well, I guess I would, but I, I think I have to go to the Philippines because that's where I'm supposed to go. And I didn't think much of it. And, and amazingly, as I said earlier, I've had many blessings and unexpected things that happened to me. And I remember I was in a hotel in Pune, India, with all the Baha'i youth. We were having a great time together. I got a letter from the Universal House of Justice. And I was so excited. I thought, how come a letter? Why would a letter come to me from the House of Justice, the highest elected body in the Baha'i faith? I opened the letter. And it said, we have heard from Mr. Fazy that you have expressed an interest to pioneer in Ireland, in ERA, which is, of course, Southern Ireland. And they said, we also have heard that you are planning to go to the island of Mindanao in the Philippines. And they said that going to the Philippines is meritorious. And going to Ireland is more meritorious. And of course I thought, oh, I better choose the more meritorious. (laughs) They said, however, the choice is entirely up to you. In other words, they didn't tell me which place to choose, but the rest of the letter said, when you return via Tehran, we now will allow you to go to all of the holy places in Iran, or the Baha'i holy places in Iran because I had asked permission on my trip to to India, could I visit the holy places? And they told me, no, these are places that are associated with the central figures of the faith in Iran. Why do you think they discouraged you from visiting these holy places in Iran at that time? I absolutely don't know. Maybe it wasn't for some reason a good timing to do that. I, I don't really know why. I wanted to. And many Baha'is had done that, many Baha'is in those days, before all of this horrible situation now in Iran that's going on with the arrest of our dear Baha'i members and horrible persecution. They were allowed to do this, mostly very quietly, however. We didn't make a big fuss about visiting. Mm -hmm. But I have no idea why that happened. There I was in Tehran, and I stayed with a family named the Samandari family. And after I had visited these holy places, and I'll tell you just a little about that, I had this great, great bounty, great gift given to me to visit the house of the Bob. And the first day that I went, I was a bit ill. I didn't feel good. And I wanted to say my prayers and enjoy the feeling of being in such an important place, but I didn't feel very good. So I asked the gentleman who was the custodian of the house of the Bob, the person in charge of it, could I come back the next day? And he said, okay, you can come back tomorrow. Well, the next day I came back, and he told me every day a number of beautiful stories, beautiful stories about the early times of the House of the Bob. Then I said, well, I've come for two days. Could I come for five days? Could I make my time longer and stay here? And he said, yes. And then, this is rather cheeky of me, I think, really, but still I was so enamored of being in this very amazing place 
and I'll explain about that, that I wanted to come more times. So I, he said five days. And then finally on the fifth day I said, could I make it nine days? Would it be possible? And he said, yes. So for nine days in a row, every morning, very early, at like three or four in the morning, I would get up and go in the cover of darkness to this beautiful little house, which was the place where the very first believer in the Bob, who, as I told you earlier in my story, was the person that was named the gate, the gate of the new age, and who prophesied the coming of Baha'u'llah. That was his house. And for nine days, every day, I went there. And I remember one beautiful story that Mr. Afnan told me, and it's very brief, but he said that one of the great, great teachers of the Baha'i faith named Martha Root, she had come to Shiraz to visit the house of the Bab. And when she came into the little courtyard, there was a beautiful courtyard with a pool and a well where the Bob would draw his water. And next to the well was an orange tree that grew these beautiful oranges. In fact, I ate a bunch of those oranges, thinking maybe I'll get more spiritual if I'll eat the oranges, but I don't think it happened. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) he said Martha Root came into that courtyard, and she prostrated herself on the stones and wept. And he said she wept so deeply that she left a pool of tears on the stones. That beautiful house of the Bobwood has been destroyed by the fanatical uh, factions in Iran, and it was razed to the ground. But uh, I had the great uh, privilege. It will be rebuilt in the future, because even during the time of Baha'u'llah, he himself asked for the plans and the exact dimensions and details of that house. He kept those details himself, and during Abdu'l Baha's lifetime, he kept those same plans. And during the Guardian's time, he had photographs made so it could always be restored if it had ever been destroyed. So in the future, it will be restored, I'm sure. Then after that, I went on this trip all over Turkey and then to all of, all of the European countries, including Scandinavia and up to the Arctic Circle. And on this trip, I met all kinds of amazing people. And I was asked to give Baha'i talks in all these places, and I did that. One other thing that I, I should say, I finally came back from that trip. We went to Ireland. I pioneered there uh, for three years and then came back to the United States. I got my degree in University of Illinois. And then I was invited to Haifa to serve in Haifa as the coordinator of the gardens. So for 11 years, I lived in Haifa, and I was the coordinator of the gardens, and during that time worked on some of the conceptual plans for the what is called the Ark and Terraces of the Baha'i World Center. And we began a program for the youth to come and stay for a year of service in Haifa. Then during that time, I had the great experience and most wonderful uh, gift of knowing the beloved Ruhia Khanum, the wife of the guardian. And I became very close to her and used to be with her so frequently. Back at the very beginning of your story, you had quoted something about the power of the covenant. Can you repeat yes. that quotation again? It's from Abdu'l-Bahá, mm-hmm. and I was paraphrasing it. It's fairly close to what he says. But this covenant is that God would never leave mankind without guidance power that's mysterious power in this cause far, far above the kin of men and angels. It's the power of the covenant that pulsates through the artery 
of all mankind, and it guides and protects us and assists us and heals us. So this is a power that when people begin to turn the mirror of their soul to the messenger of God and to the writings of the messenger of God, then they reflect that. You know, we all have like a mirror in a sense. Our soul is kind of like a mirror. If we turn the soul to the earthly things, it will reflect earthly things. And if by our will we turn, by effort, we turn our mirror towards the sunlight, towards the spiritual world, towards the, the revelation of God, we will begin to reflect that in our lives. So it's a matter of our will. If we want to turn away, we can. No one says, you know, you have to be a believer you know, that's why I guess Baha'is are forbidden to coerce or try to force people to believe, because how useful is that? They might believe for a year or two, and then they say, I don't care. It has to be from within ourselves. We make the effort to turn our mirror towards the light of this revelation that came from the messengers of God. And the wonderful thing about the covenant is it binds together all of the holy books and all of the past messengers of God, because there is a promise, the Buddhist prophecy that says, I am not the first Buddha nor the last. The glorious Buddha would come. You know, there's a prophecy in, in the Buddhist writings about that. And glorious is Baha'u'llah. The name Baha'u'llah means the glory of God. And so it's prophesied literally in every holy book. There's a thread, like a golden thread of this covenant that runs through all of the holy books that links the present day now to the latest revelation from God, which is Baha'u'llah, the glory of God. Now, there was a statement you said very early on that piqued my interest. You said that when you first ran into the man that stopped while you were cleaning up the glass, oh, yeah. and then you walked into your house and you said a prayer, and you said, oh God, if there is a God, I was a little surprised that you would parenthetically say that, Coming from a Christian background, I assumed you always believed in God. I did, but what happened, I had become rather disillusioned. I thought, how can all my friends, if they, if they don't believe in this Christian church exactly as it's taught to me, how can they be saved? And I, was, I started to wonder, is there a God, really? Is it, you know, I was at the end of my rope in many ways. I think at that point, I still believed, but I was starting to wonder, could it be true? And I remember my very good friend Gary, in fact, was the person who convinced me, really, by logical argument, that there's a creator of everything, and so that creator is God. So he convinced me that there was a God, actually, at some point along the line there. He helped me at that time, actually, to keep my faith, you might say, just by a rational argument about there's a God. Hmm. So, and it, Oh, another thing that's interesting is what happened to that man. Who was that man that came in the night? That was a fascinating thing. Many years later, that man came to visit me in Ireland. He'd been on his Baha'i pilgrimage, and he said, You know, that night when I met you in the street, and by the way, I hadn't seen him from that moment, clear until 16 years later, I think it was. He said, That night I had just been with a friend, telling this friend, my longtime friend, about Baha'i, and my friend said, I don't want to hear about it, I don't want to know about it, I'm not interested. So he said, I, I felt sad for him. He said, I went to my car and I said a long prayer. It's a prayer called the Tablet of Ahmad. It's a beautiful prayer that I would urge your listeners, whether they're Baha'is or not, to use it and read it. 
But uh, this tablet, he read this tablet, and he thought to himself, the next person I see, I'm going to stop and tell them about the revelation of Baha'u'llah. And he said, I turned on my key, and I started driving down the street, and there you were standing in the street waiting for me to come and tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what happened that night. There was something that you said that I thought maybe that the listeners might find interesting is that you had mentioned that the Baha'is don't display the portrait of Baha'u'llah normally. And I wanted you to explain why is it that Baha'is don't display the portrait of Baha'u'llah on a regular or normal basis? Well, there are probably many reasons. One of them being that, it, it, in a way, if you had, let's say if we had a, a, an actual photograph of Jesus, this photograph could just be spread all over in all kinds of very inappropriate places, maybe because people love Jesus, but it wouldn't be very respectful. So in a way, the reason for that is out of great respect for the image of Baha'u'llah, and also not that it would lead to any superstition that people would have sort of like worship the photograph. Oh, here's this picture of, of the one I believe in. I'm going to worship that picture. I think the concept is you, we, we look at the words of Baha'u'llah, the teachings of Baha'u'llah, as what is important, not the physical image of Baha'u'llah. So those are some of the reasons. I'm sure I'm not giving you all the reasons that may be there, but th- those are some of the reasons for it. It's to not make something like a an over you know, like a fanatical fetish out of something. So, Steve, thank you so much for sharing your remarkable story. (laughs) Thank you. I don't know if it's remarkable, but all I can say is that if anyone ever has the opportunity to just even challenge themselves and say, I want to study and look at this for myself and prove or disprove it, I would suggest they try that. And the other thing I want to say in closing is this, that um, I have never seen such a remarkable marvelous thing for the healing of people. Right now, the Baha'is in every part of the world, they have what are called study circles. That's where everyone is free to come and learn in a study circle without any pressure to become a Baha'i. You can contact a local Baha'i in your area and say, oh, I would like to come to a study circle. The first book is about the soul and life after death. It's a very beautiful book all about the soul and the importance of our soul. And that's something we need in society today is to get back to learning about what is the soul and what is, what are, why are we here? What's our purpose in life? I hope you enjoyed that interview with Steve Ader, a Baha'i who has traveled all over the world in service of his faith. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
When righteousness is weak and faints, and unrighteousness exalts in pride, then my spirit arises on earth. For the salvation of those who are good, for the destruction of evil in men, for the fulfillment of the kingdom of righteousness, I come to this world from age to age. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. To order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice, from henceforth, even forever. of the religion of the Arabian and the overthrow of the kingdom of Iran and the degradation of the followers of my religion. A descendant of the Iranian kings will be raised up as a prophet. shall I be the last. In due time, another Buddha will arise in the world, a holy one, a supremely enlightened one, endowed with wisdom in conduct, auspicious, knowing the universe, an incomparable leader of men, a master of angels and mortals. He will reveal to you the same eternal truths which I have taught you. He will preach his religion, glorious at the goal, in the spirit and in the letter. He will proclaim a religious life, holy, perfect, and pure, such as I now proclaim. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Glory, the glory of God, 
And in the Holy Qur'an, God says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. His light is like a niche in which is a lamp. The lamp encased in glass, the glass as it were, a brilliant star, lit from a blessed tree, an olive, of neither the east nor of the west, whose oil is beginning to burst into light, though no fire has touched it. Light upon light, God guideth whomsoever he willeth to his light, and of all things God is knowing. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.